everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. On today's show, we're talking with Matt Wright, Environment Art Director at Bad Robot Games. Matt has worked in both the film and the game industry, including working on some of the Harry Potter movies and the 2003 adventure film Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. On the game side of things, before he was at Bad Robot, he's worked at Amazon, Microsoft, and Valve. This is a new kind of show for us, uh, which is exciting. Normally in these shows, I'll ask someone at the end of an interview, you know, if someone wants to get into your field um, in particular, what do they need in their portfolio? And then they'll tell us and it's all good information. But it's just it's usually one or two questions. We spend maybe half the episode talking about this. And this was something that was really important to Matt because he's interviewed hundreds of people hundreds and hundreds of people over his 20 plus years of experience in the industry. And he has a ton of great info for anyone out there who is trying to get into the industry or even people that are in the industry, what you need to do to continue to keep your portfolio up to date, um, things like that. He's just got a wealth of knowledge. He has a ton of uh, amusing stories, harsh stories, and just incredible insight on what to do and what not to do. Um, when you're applying for a job, when you're getting your portfolio ready, and when you're actually in the interview room. And then when you get into a studio, how do you remain relevant? What do you do to ensure that you have a good reputation in the business and that you can continue to have a you know really fruitful career? So there's a ton of great stuff in here. I think you're going to like it. Uh, without further ado, here's Matt Wright. So, Matt, I was looking at some of your work on ArtStation and saw what you did on Forza 6 with the weather system in that game. I just have to ask about the process of creating that because I looked up some gameplay on YouTube. And and one thing that's always bothered me about visuals in games is when it comes to water or liquid of any sort, particularly for games that are trying to be as photorealistic as possible, is that the immersion breaks a little bit when it comes to creating moisture in a game. The the visuals just never seem to be as up to snuff as they are to the character models or other, or other visuals in the game. But the work you guys did on this game with the with the weather effects are just unbelievable. I think I watched like over an hour of footage on YouTube of the gameplay of the weather. I mean, the reflections, the lighting, the way the raindrops fell, or the way that the water looked on the track as you're driving toward it or through it, the water effects on the camera. I mean, I was completely blown away by it. So I'd, I'd love to hear how you and your team implemented this system into Forza 6. So I, I think that's one of the interesting things about Forza is that, you know, they, and it's one of the reasons I joined the studio was that, that they really push their visuals, right? And they, they really know the product that they're making. Um, and I think one thing that really helps is because they're so just so committed to just making this one genre of game that they can just do it really well. Right. And we, we first off was, was something like that. It's a team effort, right? Like it's not just one person. I was one person working on it along with tech artists and, um, uh, some graphics engineers. We had a super talented graphics engineer that, um, coded the water on the lens effect. And, um, yeah, I, I made a, some water droplet normals and masks for him. And he put it all together inside of the shader and that was performant for that. And yeah, my role really was making the tracks look wet. And I I did that with a, with a very alongside a very talented um, tech artist. And for, for me, the biggest challenge was 
we have this game, we have all of these data for the tracks. We don't want to have to remake everything for the track to be wet, right? Like we, we don't want to have t- two versions of Monza and we don't want to have two versions of Brands Hatch and everything else, right? Like we, we want we, we want to be able to make the environment look wet using a combination of masks and shader effects and everything else. So what was really interesting, I, I sat down with my tech artist and we, we just went over what, what makes a surface look wet, right? And the basics, if you're, if you're dealing with asphalt, it gets darker, it gets more saturated, um, and then eventually it starts to get more glossy and then puddles start to form and the normal gets flattened, right? Because the, the water kind of fills in some of the crevices and, and the micro detail on the, on the surface. But then, but then you look at a car body and because the car body is not porous, that gets wet differently, right? Like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't darken, um, you know, water beads up and sits on the surface. So, you know, we, we worked out this system inside the shader where um, different surfaces could behave differently to, to water effects, right? So, and, and that was really key in making certain things look wet, right? Like it's this, it's this big combination of analyzing the real world, a whole ton of shader effects, and then using some smart information with some masks and some wetness masks and puddle masks to try and build this environment somewhat procedurally so that we don't have to recreate all of these maps in 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 the wet and I, I think one of the one of the biggest reasons we could do it on Forza Six was because you know this is switched to a full PBR shading workflow, which which means that finally we can get pretty accurate reflections, right? And the, the reflection tech in in Forza was actually really pretty decent. Um, I, you know, a, a lot of it comes off the back of the fact that cars are shiny and they look kind of and they look kind of rubbish if they're not shiny. So if you're going to make a racing game, you better make sure the cars look look good. So we had some very custom reflection tech for that, which you couldn't really couldn't really use in a first person shooter or something like that. But but this was you know a good six years ago, I think that we that we did this, and now a lot of that tech we're pushing is pushed into other games, right? Like and even uh, simulation companies. I, I spent a year working for a. Um, uh, self-driving car simulation company and did really, really similar procedural wet road work for that, um, for creating virtual environments for, for self-driving cars to drive around. Um, and it's, it's a similar process, right? But it was just this time it was inside of Unreal. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done some similar stuff at Bad Robot Games as well. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And as you know, every year tools get better, computer performance gets better, and we're able to do these things just a little bit more realistically. So you can just kind of build on top of that. And the, and the new weather stuff in in the latest Forzas looks unbelievable, and it's kind of built on top of that original work that we did back on Forza Six. Man, that's great stuff. I, I was going to ask, how much real world research did you guys do? Thankfully, like I live in the Pacific Northwest, so it's really not hard to get. <laughs> to get yeah, you just gotta wake up, right, and Ex- just look outside. Exactly. Yeah, I, I I walk my kid to school, and and I've got enough wet wet research there. Um, you know, I I think the other really interesting stuff that that's coming around the corner is like if you if you use Unreal, like being able to do 
rain particles so much better than than we ever could right like you don't have to do a cheesy screen effect anymore and you can combine it with a bunch of really good looking volumetric mist and everything else and that's that's half of the trouble is actually getting that lighting right and we on Forza 6 we had a great lighting director and we were able to really you know help help sell that wet look so with with tools getting better this, this stuff gets easier and easier for sure and computer power gets better we can have more realistic uh, weather effects. Well, hats off to the work you guys did, man. Like I said, unbelievable stuff. And I guess I need to check out the new Forza just to see how the team iterated upon the work you guys did. That was one of the cool things working there, I think, was just the focus that everybody had on their little particular things that they were working on. Like everybody was obsessed with getting things correct and, and looking real. It was it was good for somebody that has kind of OCD and that attention to detail. It was really fun to work with a team like that. Well, cool. I remember, you know, when we first met, you said you didn't start out in video games. You actually started out in industrial design, but you didn't really like industrial design, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm from the UK. Um, it's from the south of the UK. And I, um, I went to university for industrial design. I, I, I always had this love of both art and science and industrial design seemed like a good, a good fit for combining those things together. And yeah, it was a, a pretty intensive um, four-year university course, and I just, I just found myself gravitating more towards the actual three D work. So this this course, you, you not only design products, but then you modeled them in three D using CAD software and and everything else. And that's that's what I loved doing. I, lo- I loved making these designs in three D. It was super fun. And I, I left I left university, and a buddy of mine at university we were like what are we going to do? It's like, I don't really want to go and work for a design firm and have a guy in a gray suit pick out the most boring design and that gets shipped. And I'm like, I really enjoy doing 3D graphics. So him, him and I started a, a graphics company and we did, we did a crazy bunch of work for architects and designers. Um, we did some work for the Ministry of Defense um, around some weapon systems that was contacted, contracted through an outside agency. And you know, it was it was really interesting. Is like I was 20, 22, 23 at the time, and you know, you're you're dealing with some pretty big contracts and dealing with people. Um, it was really interesting. Um, you know, it's kind of a baptism of fire, really jumping into some of this stuff, and and that that eventually led me onto the film industry in a strange way. I was on a um, a chat forum for three D graphics and. There was a guy there that I talked to for years, and he just pinged me one day and was like, "Hey, I'm I'm doing some work for a, a company that's making a bunch of film sets for Harry Potter. Um, it's not really the work I want to do. They need to find somebody else to do it. Would you be interested?" I'm like, "This is the weirdest way to get a job ever on some like IRC chat program, right? It's like this is." This is bizarre. So, well, especially for but, a franchise like that, right? I mean, we're talking about one of the biggest film franchises in the world. Yeah. So, so the interesting thing was, it's it's, it's not like you know, it's it's not like the film company came to me. This was a, a small production house that had been outsourced to to make a bunch of film, like set extensions and film sets and everything else. So, I, I drive down and I meet the I meet the owner of this company. Uh, he's he's living on this estate, um, and I meet with him and. They're, they're a cool bunch of guys. They've they've got a, a lidar scanner, and so we'd go in and we'd scan film sets and then re- rebuild stuff um, from there. And 
did that for a couple of years. Um, great time in my early 20s, crazy bunch of people, crazy projects. Um, but I think one of the cool things was that because you're a small team, you never really said no to anything, right? It's like, no, we, 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 need, to, we need to keep this company going and eat. And it's like, all right, we're just going to figure out how we're going to do this, right? And I think that experience kept that mentality in my head for the rest of my career moving forward. So wherever I go, I always had this mentality of this needs to get done. Nobody knows how to do it. I'm going to admit, I don't know how to do this, but I'm sure as heck going to take a look and try and figure it out. And, you know, maybe I'll need two or three graphics engineers to help me figure it out. Maybe it's impossible, but let's, let's take a look and see, see how we can do it. So you really like to embrace the unknown. I, th I think that's the fun part. And I think that's one of the things that's kept me in this industry for so long, right? Is that, that there's always, there's always new, new ways to do things. Technology improves, software improves, computers get better. And, you know, if, if you don't keep up with that and if you don't experiment and try new things, then you're going to be left behind in this industry, right? And if you, like, I, I never wanted to be that person that I, just, I, I, I don't want to rag on accountants, but I, but I never saw myself like sit, sitting in, sitting in a suit at a desk, doing the same thing every day for, for 20 years and then collecting my pension and, and going off and retiring somewhere that, that just didn't interest me. So yeah, like embracing the unknown, trying, trying different things, not being afraid to fail, I think is, is so important. Um, it's it's scary as all heck, but it's important. Yeah, I think that's something that's really cool about the industry is that the people that have been in it the longest, you know, for like 20 or 30 years that we've talked to are always the most forward thinking. They actually embrace the new technology. And that's not to say that we've talked to people that don't have as much experience that aren't of the same mindset they are. But I think that's really cool that the old guard aren't so set in their ways. You know, you like run into other people who have worked in other industries that, that do get very set in their ways. And it makes sense. But when something new comes along that could actually improve what they're doing, they don't embrace it. It's a fear of change. And I think if you do fear change and you're working in the game industry, then you will be left behind. Yeah, you will be, especially in this industry, right? And, and I... I I, I don't want to rag on accountancy. Like maybe there's like some cool. This is the anti-accountant show. <laughs> rag on accountancy show. Like maybe there's some cool tech that comes out every year, and accountants go crazy for it. Um, and you know, but I, I definitely like. I, I think just the more creative industries, whether you're in advertising, marketing, film, games, you know, music, acting, like there's always something new there to explore. And I think that you know, I, I think it's healthy. It, it keeps your interest going. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, so was there any particular film you worked on that you can look back on and say, like, I'm really proud of the work we did on that one? You know, I th th there was a few, um, like w working on Harry Potter was honestly awesome. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd read the books, um, and then just to see, like the detail and the craftsmanship in these film sets was just incredible, right? And the and the film props as well. And it's it's really interesting. Like you can you can walk around today. I'm a, I'm an architecture nerd, so so you could you could walk around today and you can see like some of the cheap rubbishy condos that are getting built. And you're like, there is 
there, there is just no talent in architecture anymore unless you push into like the million dollar homes and, and everything else. And, and you look at the stuff and it's like, what's people's love for this, right? Like th- three, three, 200 years ago, you couldn't have built this, right? Like, and then and you're like, where has all of that gone? And then you walk, walk onto a film set like Harry Potter and there is an insane amount of really talented craftsmen doing amazing work, right? And you walk in there and you're like, this is unbelievable from the people that are framing in the great hall to the people that are making wands and building all of these small little set pieces. It's like, this is incredible work. And it, it was amazing just to feel part of that. And it's like, I had a tiny, small little part in this, right? And you walk into that and you're like, there is insane craftsmanship here. And then the thing that saddens you the most is like, that filming's done. They've got their shots. Some of that gets torn down and chucked in a skip outside the building, right? And it's like, that's how can you throw this stuff away? But you just can't, you can't keep it. So that was a really interesting one. Um, and then um, did some work for Master and Commander building. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Russell Crowe movie, right? Russell Crowe movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But building, some sh- building some ships for that. And we had... Um, <laughs> we, we had a reference trip to Boston um, to gather a bunch of res- reference from the USS Constitution over in Boston. Um, so we had a week on the USS Constitution, and that's it was in a naval yard, and there was a, it was an active Navy base. So we'd go there every day. There'd be the Navy there. They would, they would be on the ship whilst we were taking photographs and laser scanning and everything else. And it was, it was challenging because it was Boston. It was in the winter it was minus whatever degrees. It was freezing. Sometimes it was snowing. You're trying to laser scan a ship that's bobbing on the water and it's, and it's wet. So it's shiny and lasers hate shiny stuff. And you're like, this is, this is nuts. Right. And well, yeah, especially back then. Right. I mean, that movie came out in 2002 or three, right? Something like that. It's, it's, it's a way back. So, So these laser scanners back then were, you know, they were 40, 50 pounds, in weight a piece and then you had a 40 or 50 pound battery pack that went along with it right so these were these weren't like your little iphone with its light with its lidar scanner on right like this was a different time and what was really interesting though was that we, we got a week on this boat the navy were there they answered all of our questions they showed us around the boat they had a cd with uh, blueprints and plans of all of the different bits of the boat and everything like it was just fascinating we became complete boat nerds after a week and we knew all of the names of like the little bits and pieces and then you know we we went back to our studio and and rebuilt this boat over a month um digitally and it was it was a really unique experience just hanging out with the navy guys learning about um learning about the ship and then actually getting to make it it was it was super fun yeah i mean i don't know much about sailing or anything like that but the movie feels authentic I mean, obviously, the ships and their functionality is one aspect. But that doesn't even get into the script, the acting, the costume design. I mean, the whole film felt like it was of the period it was trying to portray. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it was, a, you know, I, th- I think that was one of the great things about the movie was that, that there was so much research done across the board, right? Like you said, with costuming. And um, it felt unique because it felt deadly, right? Like from, from talking to the talking to the Navy guys, they were giving us some details about what really happens when a cannonball hits a ship. Right. And it's not, it's not like Sea of Thieves, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's disastrous and things go bad really quickly. And, you know, even just 
even just firing a cannon, people lose limbs because they got in the way of this thing kicking backwards and everything else, right? Like it was pretty brutal. And I feel like Mastering Commander was one of the first movies that really depicted that. Yeah, I mean, there was a sense of danger in pretty much everything that the characters did. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, cool. So what made you want to get into games after that? This is pretty interesting. And it kind of it leads on to some talk about like interview process and career progression and stuff like that. But um, I, I left film. I left the film company I was working for. Um, I went, went back to the UK for a bit because of some visa issues. Um, and my girlfriend who worked in the industry at the time, she was like, hey, you, what do you what do you want to do? She's she was American and she was like, Hey, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, I got family up in Seattle. You want to move up to Seattle and we can find a film studio up there to work for and see how things go. And it's like, yeah, yeah, let's give that a go. It's like, I'm I'm in my mid twenties. I got nothing better to do. So, so we move up to Seattle. um, And it, it becomes pretty apparent that like we don't, there's no real film industry up in Seattle, right? Like we, we, we didn't do our research. We're like, what the heck? We'll just go out there and, and do it. Yeah. When you said that, I was like film in Seattle. Yeah. There's something yeah, yeah. I don't know about. No, I mean, there's a, there's a good like indie film industry up here, but, um, but not, not the kind that need VFX. So what there was, was a games industry, right? And at the time there was a pretty big disconnect between film and games, right? Like, you know, now a lot of film industry is using Unreal for a bunch of previous stuff. So the, you know, so tools and techniques are so much closer. But back then there was a big gap. And, um, you know, I, I put my put my resume in at a, at a bunch of film, a bunch of games companies and tech companies, and you know, got a got a few bites. Um, I got I got a bite from Microsoft. They wanted me to come in and interview for a sports game that that uh, that they were working on. Um, and I, I got an email from this company called Valve, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I s- seem to remember playing this game called Half-Life. I don't remember if I liked it or not. Like, it was all right. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to do Valve on a Wednesday, and then I'm going to do Microsoft on a Thursday, and I'm going to use Valve as a warm-up for Microsoft because I've heard of Microsoft, and I know that Microsoft are huge. Um, I, don't, I don't know much about Valve, so I'm just going to use them as a warm-up. So... I, uh, I, this probably worked out to my advantage. I, I really think it did. Like I was totally relaxed going into Valve because I'm like, I, I don't know who these folks are. I'm just going to go in and chat with them about computer graphics and games and stuff. Like it's going to be a cool, cool day just chatting with them. And so I went in completely relaxed, talked to a bunch of really cool people there, um, got quizzed about like how I designed design a city that would be fun for gameplay and stuff. So we, we went over a bunch of that stuff and I asked to see some stuff that they were working on and, and, and they're like, okay, I, I remember Half-Life. I remember really liking it. And then I'm thinking, actually, like this is right towards the end of the interview. I'm like, that was kind of a big, deal i guess like these guys these guys are actually i'm like holy holy crap like and then suddenly for like the last 15 minutes i was nervous um and uh, and a couple of days later I, I got a call back from valve saying hey we really liked you um you seemed really passionate about what you do we'd love for you to come and come and work for us um so so that really that started the whole games thing for me so microsoft didn't matter at this point once valve gave you the offer right yeah, well, so, so I went and interviewed at Microsoft, and it was for a, 
I don't remember at the time if it was American football or um, basketball, but I'm, I'm not a sports person at all. And the, the guy that was interviewing me was like, oh, man, you must be so crazy about American football and my, or basketball, whatever it was. I'm like, I, I couldn't give a crap about it. Like, this isn't, this isn't me. Like, I, I don't care about this. So, so, so that interview was, it was very much like a mutual, hey, I'm not interested in this. I'm not the right fit for your studio. And they're like, yeah, you're not the right person for us. And we're like, all right, see you. So, you know, Valve, I'm glad Valve worked out. So how did you prepare for that first interview with Valve? I didn't. Like, I mean, well, so, I mean, I had my, I had my portfolio um, and I, I didn't want to do anything digitally because I had a bunch of shots from movies that hadn't been released yet and pictures of my work from movies that hadn't been released yet. And I'm like, I, I don't want these up on the internet being emailed to somebody. So, so I, I had like my full on like old art portfolio of like large prints and I, and I went in um, and, and just chatted to them. And it was really interesting um, talking to the different people there and learning about the different disciplines in games. And like the, the first interview I had was uh, with a, a designer called Robin and, um, and we sat down and he was like, so and we went through my portfolio and like what I'd done. And he was like, so design me, design me a city, like a, a city that, um, you know, has maybe got some futuristic elements to it. Um, what, what do you think would be cool in a game? Right. And I, I still remember this. I'm like, ah, you know, it'd be kind of cool if you, if you had this city, you're, you're looking down a street and there's a subway under, underneath the street, but there's, there's grates through, throughout the street where the light from the subway comes up. So every, every time a subway train comes through, light gets cast up into the buildings. It's at night, light gets cast up into the buildings, and that's the only thing that illuminates the world. So as you're playing, if you're trying to be stealthy, you've, you can only move in the dark, right? So, so you can hear a train coming. You know that you've got to get into the dark. The light goes past. You can, you can then see where all the enemies are. The enemies can kind of see where you are if you're not hiding, and then you can move on. And so we, we jammed on that idea for like 40 minutes. And I remember just thinking like, this is really fun, right? Like, I'm, and again, like, I think it's probably because I'm just using it as a warm-up for Microsoft. This is just me chatting with a guy, right? And so there was that, and then I had lunch with a bunch of artists. We went out and got some burgers on the side of a lake. I'm like, this is this is idyllic. I'm loving this. Right. And so just chatted with a bunch of artists about the difference between the film industry and the games industry and history and all of that stuff. And it's like, that, that seemed great. Um, I go in and I, I talked to a producer there, Bill, and it, this was, this was pretty funny. Like Bill and I have quite a history now from working at Valve for so long, but I, I sit down with Bill and he seems pretty austere. Right. And, and he's really not like once you got to know him, he's this lovely guy. But he was he was going through my resume and I was like, huh, industrial design, huh? Looking at my resume and it, and I felt like I thought he was, I think he thought that maybe I was BSing him with my qualifications or something, right? So so he pulls in a art director who also had an industrial design degree, and this art director grills me on industrial design for like thirty or forty minutes, right? And then Bill's like, okay, yeah, we'll just, you know you're on to the next person now. And, and I, I walk out and I'm like, that was weird. That was kind of uncomfortable. Um, and uh, I'm like, okay, that, that, that maybe didn't go so well. And then 
you know, I, I go on and I do do a few more interviews and clearly like it, it worked out because a, a valve, if one or two people say no, then you're just, you just cut and, and gone and your, your days, your days over. And, you know, my, my interview ended with, um, with a chat with Gabe at the end. So I'm like, okay, clearly this went well, but Bill was, Bill was funny. Like I, I had that with him and then like I kept messing up in front of him right like I'd, I'd walk down the corridor and when I was working there I'm like oh man it's Bill and I walk down the corridor and I'd trip over a piece of carpet and land flat on my ass and I'd turn around and Bill Bill would be standing there right or they had these they had these Thursday team lunches where everybody would like meet in the kitchen and you have lunch and everything and I, I had this I, I got this paper plate and I loaded up with some um, spaghetti. It was like spaghetti and meatballs. And and I, this is like the first week I'm there. And I'm looking around for like people that I know. I'm new. I'm young. I'm nervous. These are all really talented people. And I, I look into a conference room. It's called the fishbowl. And it's called the fishbowl because there's these huge sliding glass doors all the way around the room, right? And I, I look into the room and I see like four people sitting at a table in there that I know. And I'm like, cool, people I know. I'm not going to have to be the dweeb that sits like by myself in the corner or whatever. And I, I walk into that conference room. I didn't realize the glass door was shut. And I walk straight into the glass door with my plate of spaghetti. Spaghetti splats up against the glass door, right? And there's like <laughs> this huge like tomato sauce mark on there. I'm like, oh, man. And then <laughs> this voice next to me is like, Matt, are you okay? And I turn around and it's Bill, right? I'm like, God damn it, like every time in front of this guy. Uh, but it was, it was super funny. Anyway, that was, I've just made a long story longer. <laughs> oh no that was funny uh good thing you had a good interview though you kept messing up in front of bill yeah i know right <laughs> yeah, well in all seriousness though that interview process sounds a bit grueling but also sounds very thorough for val to make the best possible decision um you know you sort of have this brainstorm exercise with the city to get a sense of how you'd work once for the artists to see if you get along with them and answer any questions they might have and then the last one goes deeper into your background, paints a complete picture of who you are. And th- their their interview process was very much around kind of not just whether you know your work, but just your thought process and how you go about thinking about stuff and everything else, right? And you know, Valve was Valve was certainly this one studio that really made me think about my process for un- not only understanding environments, but also just the work that I do as well, right? Like there's, there was a, a lot of consideration around that for sure. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Okay, so let's flip the script here. In terms of interviews where you're on the other side of the desk, tell me about how some of those went. Let's start with the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always got to start with the bad ones. But what are some things people should not do when they're interviewing? There's, so it's super interesting, right? Like I've I've been fortunate enough to interview a lot of people through my career I, I love interviewing people I love talking to people about the industry and the process and everything so it's something that I always sign up for and there's definitely been some really good ones and there's been some really really awkward ones as well um, and I think like the, the first the first thing for me is just being a good artist or being a good designer isn't enough right? Like you've got to be able to communicate really well. Um, and when I was at Amazon, we interviewed one artist, phenomenal, came super recommended by people that work there and some other people that I know. Um, but the guy just lived for his work, right? Like he was so good. Um, and I, I would, 
I would love to work with this guy again. But we, we got him into interview. We'd ask him questions. He'd give kind of one-word answers. He wouldn't look at you. Like he was, he just, he didn't seem like he really cared about being at Amazon or coming to Amazon and working there or maybe just even being part of the team. And across the board, he got given a no hire, right? And I'm like, holy crap, this is ridiculous. Like, we've got to hire this guy. He's such a good artist, right? And I I think one of the things that's interesting is with these larger tech companies, so so much of the interview process is is for engineers or for production or something like that. And artists are just different people, right? Like, we're, we're a bunch of kind of weird individuals that, you know, maybe have some social awkwardness and everything else. And we've got to allow for that in the interview process. Um, But Amazon wasn't really there yet. And he got a no hire across the board. And my my boss at the time and I took this guy out for dinner and said, you're really good. You failed hard at this interview process, not because you're a terrible artist, but because you just didn't talk about your work. And we had dinner, we gave him a bunch of pointers and, you know, and then he came back to interview a, a month later or so, and he aced it. He got all the way through. Everybody loved him. And it was because he was just, he was a lot more open. Like he would talk about his work. He, he'd seem a lot more interested. Um, so, so, so that's key, right? Like just being able to communicate is super, super important. Another one I think is being willing to talk about your, talk about your process. Right, like I hope Gabe doesn't come after me for this one. But um, wait, when I was when I was at Valve, um, the uh, Gabe Newell, the owner, wanted to get to know the artists better. So we so we had like these artist lunches with Gabe, where we'd sit down in a conference room. I think it was catered, from what I remember. Everybody would eat their lunch, and Gabe would ask us a bunch of questions about what we're working on and everything else. And you know, you, you could either see it as like a grilling from Gabe, or Gabe just paying real interest in what we do. And I think it was the latter. Like Gabe was really interested in just learning about different people at the studio and everything else. And like, I, I remember I was working on doing um, LODs, which if you don't work in 3d, it's just removing 3d data from a model so that when it's further away, it's cheaper. Right. And it's a, it's a bit of a mundane process. You just kind of delete edges and faces and stuff from a model. And so Gabe was asking what I was working on. I said, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm working on LODs. And it's like, Oh, what's your process for that? I'm like, well, I just, take out faces until it's got down to a certain poly count. It's like, yeah, but how, how do you choose what bits to remove? I'm like, well, I just like look at it and think that it, that face is pretty small. I'm going to delete that one. And he's like, how do you know when you're done? I'm like, I haven't really thought about it. Like I just remove as much as I can, I guess. And, and I, and we left the, we, we left the lunch and another artist was like, man, that was a bit rough, wasn't it? And I remember thinking it was, was Gabe just having a bad day and was picking on me or something? And and then I stopped and I thought that, that wasn't it at all, right? Like Gabe's an engineer, is so process driven. Like I should be able to articulate my process better, right? Like clearly I had a process for this, but I just never really thought about it. And it was that point that really pushed me into thinking that like process is important. Being able to talk about a process is just as important because you're working with a team and you're going to want to share knowledge and educate other people and express what you're doing and everything else. So like be, being able to talk about your process is hugely important. And if you don't think you have a process, I would say stop and really think about what you're doing um, because everything that we do in life has a process to it. We just maybe don't think about it. Right. Do you think he did that to get you to think about your process or do you think it was more so he was interested in what your process was? 
I, th- I think he was interested in what the process was and then probably saw that I had a difficult time articulating what it was and was trying to help me get better at that, right? And I, I appreciate it. Like, that must have happened 12, 13 years ago, and I still remember it. So it was an important, clearly it was like an, an important learning learning thing for me. And then, then I think like the, the other big one for, for interviews is, it's like, don't lie. I remember one interview, um, we, we interviewed um, an artist and they were, they were talking about uh, a PBR shader that they had developed. And this artist picked the wrong people to talk about this to. Um, I had just got off the bat giving a lecture on PBR process to um, the whole art, art crew at Amazon. I was going the interview with a um, technical art director who writes PBR shaders for a living. And this artist was clearly just making up a bunch of stuff. Right. And, you know, we sat there very gracefully. I, when I'm interviewing somebody, I'm never going to point out that, to them that somebody's lying. I'll make a note of it and we'll talk about it as a team later, but I'm never going to make somebody feel bad. Right. Obviously. But we're, we're halfway through this and, my, my cohort, Jeremy, was asking this artist a few questions about it. And the artist became flustered and turned around and said, okay, clearly you guys know, know what you're doing and I'm kind of BSing you here. I'm sorry. So, and it's like, it was, it was really awkward. And I just, I felt so bad for this artist because it's like, there's, there's nothing worse than lying in an interview and then getting found out for it like how uncomfortable is that and we, we were super nice we're like hey let's just move on and let's do some other stuff and it's you know they, they were doing great until then um so so you, you don't need to lie about stuff like if you don't know something you don't know something there's nothing wrong with that like be honest about it yeah it's really ironic when something like that happens you know if, if your greatest fear is that the people that are interviewing you are going to find out that you might not know as much as you think you should know so you think oh, i gotta make something up to make myself sound smarter um, but the problem is if you do that and they call your bluff on it, then your greatest fear actually comes true. It's just, it's just a hell of a lot smarter, to be honest. I mean, that's, that's just the best tactic to have there. It, it really is, right? And I think that's one of the interesting things in this industry. You, you can't know everything. Be honest and say, I don't know that, but I'd love to learn it. Like, I, I want to be able to take some time to learn this, right? Right. But I can also see, I can relate to someone who does that for sure. Cause the insecurity is real and you get caught up in your insecurity and you could wind up doing the wrong thing. It, um, it's just something that can happen. Right. I, I can definitely see how somebody would get into that state and like it could, it can also just snowball as well. Like you could, you could start by one little tiny white line in an interview and then you, you get quizzed on that further and now you're having to build on top of it and suddenly it becomes rather anxious and awkward. Right. Right. If you play in the dirt long enough, you're going to get dirty. Exactly. Exactly. All right. One more bad interview story. There's got to be one more that really stands out. Um, this, this one artist, again, came, came recommended. Um, and this is probably another thing. Like, be, be super nice and be lovely because people are going to recommend you. And that's how most people get hired is through recommendations from other people. So this artist came highly recommended for some other talented folks that were there at Turn 10. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm really, really excited to, to interview this guy. And I'm, I'm sitting down at the table. The, the guy's running a little bit late. 
there's three of us that are doing the preliminary interview. We're sitting there. This guy walks in, flops down into a chair. His, his butt is barely on the chair. Like he's almost horizontal in the chair. He pulls up his hoodie, like closes up his hoodie, like almost over his face. And, and he's like just, just slouched back in the chair. And I'm like, who, who is this guy? Like, this is so weird. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm having uh, a hard time visualizing and, that. That's so, that's so yeah, odd. It's, 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 it's so odd. And I'm like, and he just, he came across like he just didn't, didn't give a damn. And he's, he's like the whole interview, he's just like slouched back in the chair and he's kind of like, whatever. And I leave the interview. I'm like, can we hire this guy? Like, I'm, I'm all for like individual quirks and everything, but like, this is, this is kind of weird. And, you know, the guy that I work with is like, trust me, he's a great artist. He's just a bit of a kook. I'm like, all right, I'm a, I'm a bit of a kook. Let's do this. We, and we hired him. F- phenomenal artist, great team player. You know, he just had this like super casual way about him and he, and he wasn't being obnoxious and he didn't mean to come across like he didn't give a damn. It was just, it was how he did it. So I'd say just don't, don't do that. Like be, even if that is you, like just be attentive, sit up, look at somebody in the eye if you're comfortable doing that and pay attention and seem like you want to be there. Right. 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 Yeah. So let's flip the narrative here a little bit. Let's talk about some good interviews you've been a part of. One of my favorites was at Amazon. Um, this guy came in. Um, he was interviewing for like the UI lead position. Um, he'd been recommended by an art director there at Amazon. He, he comes in. The poor guy, like he was scheduled for an interview with us the week before, but on his way over to the interview, his Uber had crashed and he had ended up in hospital because of it. Um, so he was, he was coming in. He, he had a... He had one crutch. He was still having to walk on a crutch from the accident from the week before. And he, he comes in and he, he has probably the best portfolio I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen some good ones. And he sits down and he, he plugs his laptop in. He's super organized. He pulls his laptop up. He greets everybody, talks to everybody. First of all, he wants to hear what everyone's done and what they do in the company. And he talks to them a little bit about that. And then he sits down plugs his laptop in, he's got a folder on his laptop where everything's organized into his work and he's and he just starts talking through it. And it's like, this this is a professional, right? Like he he knows what he's doing, he's super organized, he's focused, and he he talks through his work, he stops, he lets people ask him questions about it. The work is beyond gorgeous, right? Like he's really, really talented. Um but he's super humble and he's so nice, right? And he was he was amazing to talk to for that hour. And I remember walking out of that interview thinking, I've done a couple of hundred interviews easily in my life. And this this guy is in the top top three, I would say. And I would I would give my left kidney to to work with him. Thankfully I didn't have to give my left kidney to work wow. for him. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so was, what made his portfolio so good beyond the work in it? So the, the work was really good. He did a really good job of talking through. So he was U- UI design, um, and he did a great job of talking through why he designed things a certain way that he did for. Um, so, so some of it that he did was like stuff for film. Some of it was for games. And he talked through his process a lot about not only like, oh, I use this tool in Adobe Illustrator to draw this circle. No, forget that. Like, we know you can do that crap. 
Um, it was more like un- getting down and really understanding what the project is and making sure that the work that you're doing is the right thing for that project, right? And he was really good at, ex- at expressing that. And it was clear that every piece of work that he did for a different film, whether it was this quick contract that he did in a day or two, or whether it was something where he was embedded for months on end, like he really understood what he was working on. And because of that, his work just shone, right? Like that was, that was awesome. Um, and then I, I had another one, um, a, a tech artist um, at Amazon. Um, and I was called in. Um, I, I didn't even know actually that we were looking at hiring a tech artist. And I was asked to give this guy a phone screen because um, I was probably one of the more technical artists on the team. I'm like, hey, can you, can you just phone screen this guy um, and see if he's a good fit for us? So the, the phone screen was meant to be 20 minutes. And I think we talked on the phone for just under two hours. Um, and he was just a super, super interesting guy to talk to, had a really good history, um, but just his his tech art knowledge around graphics, which was obviously my expertise, um, was phenomenal. And it was just, it was amazing just hearing about his experiences. And then we, we spent a good hour talking through like our upcoming graphics trends in, in games um, and then some of the shader stuff that he had done for certain effects and everything else. And that was a phenomenal interview for me. And, it, and I was, I just phone screened him, right? Like he was, he, he was brilliant. And again, and just another person that's really, was really able to articulate his thought process and his work really well. And I think that's, that's so key, right? Like um, being, able to take an incredibly complex um, task and explain it to a layman that knows nothing about what you're talking about, right? And, like, his technical knowledge is obviously, you know, vast compared to mine, but he was able to explain some of these hugely complex mathematical stuff that he'd done in graphics really plainly for me to be able to understand and be interested in it and ask questions more and more. So... It's, it's so little of interviews, I think, is really about the work that you do, and it's more about how you articulate yourself, and you know whether whether you're going to be good in that team, right? Right. So it all goes back to what you were saying about communication. No, I I, I completely agree, and it's like I think for most artists, like understand that the sheer fact that you're talking to somebody at this company, it means that your portfolio is of a good enough quality to to get you that far. Right, because we've all reviewed your portfolio before we do a, before we even do a phone screen, even if it's a phone screen with HR versus an, an artist or something. So y- your work's already good. The rest, ninety, I'll say ninety percent of the rest of it is just whether you're a good fit for the studio and how well you communicate and work with others. What about the application process? What are some of the most important things for people to do to actually land the interview? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so. There's a couple of things. The first one is like be organized, right? Like I've I've done interviews where somebody's come in and they've sat down and they're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to pull up my Google Drive with my work in. I'm like, oh great, go ahead. And their laptop won't connect to our like Wi-Fi at Amazon or something, right? I'm like, that's awkward. Um, do you have it on the computer? And they're like, no, I only have it on my Google Drive. I'm like oops 
Um, that's not great. Um, or somebody else forgot their password on how to get into their portfolio, right? I'm like, mm, probably should have worked harder at this one. Um, so, like, so, so be organized. And like one of the big things I see from guys coming out of um, you know, a, a game design school or something is that you, you get like a little bit of an education in everything, right? So and unless you're at a, a very like focused group, like a like a Noman or something where you're just doing a course in environment art, like you, you might do a bit of environment art, you might do some characters, you might do some lighting, you might do a bit of animation and people chuck all of this stuff into their portfolio, right? And it's like, that's great. I, I understand it. Like this is what you've been doing the last few years, but sh- show some focus in your portfolio around what it is that you want to do, right? So no longer do environment artists build characters and animate characters and light scenes and everything else, right? Like there's a, a lot more um, specialist roles now. So tailor your portfolio to, to what it is that you're doing, right? And you don't have to have a huge body of work, right? Like you can legitimately get hired off one piece of work and we've done that. Like we hired a guy at Valve who I saw his work on CG Talk. I don't, I don't even know if CG Talk's around anymore, but it was a... Um, a forum for graphics. He'd done this amazing animation of this kind of circuit board with the little pieces. And I don't know why I'm doing hand motions. You guys can't see me, but but the kind of kind of these these these, these pieces unfolding on the circuit board, and it becomes this little mechanical thing with character, and it just kind of trots off the screen, and it's beautifully modeled, beautifully textured, beautifully rendered. I'm like, holy crap! And just the idea behind it was really awesome, right? I'm like, this guy's amazing. He was, uh, he was a British guy that has nothing to do with it. He was a British guy and we flew him out and I'm like, yo, I'll bring some other work with you. He, he comes over and he's like, yeah, I've got a few other pieces from a game that I've been working on, but I don't really want to show them because they're not really at the quality bar that I'm comfortable showing. I, I just want to show this one animation and I'm like, this could be risky, but let's do it. And the work was so good it showed so much of his personality, how he designs things and everything else that he was an easy hire across the board, right? And this is off one piece of work. This guy went on to design so much of Portal 2, the visuals for Portal 2, um, all of the mechanical stuff and everything else. Like insanely talented person got hired off literally one piece of art in his portfolio. So you, you don't need a massive amount of work in your portfolio um you just need stuff that really shows the level that you're at and i would say have a have a friend look through the portfolio with you or even better have somebody that you don't know look through the portfolio and give you some honest advice right like we we all have pieces of work that are in our portfolio because we have some emotional connection to them the person that's reviewing your portfolio has no emotional connection to your work whatsoever they're just looking at it and thinking is that a good piece of work or not so have, have somebody go through and say, that's good, that's good, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, right? Like just, just trim it down to just a few good pieces of work because people are going to go back to that bad piece of work all the time. They'll say, okay, he's done those two bits that are great, but what happened there? Like why is that yeah, there? Like, like why is this even in here? Yeah, yeah. Don't, 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 don't put it in there. You're just casting doubt on yourself. Like, one or two really good pieces of work, that's fine. Like I, I will see that and I'll be like, that's great. Right. What about cover letters? Is that something you put a lot of stock in when you're looking at applications? I, I do love a nice cover letter. Um, 
and and one that's honest. There was there was one that came to me, um, just said, "Look, I just need a job, right?" And I'm like, I'm like, you know what? At least you're honest, right? Like this is this is on, on one hand, it's a terrible cover letter, but at least you're honest. Um, but then, like, I I feel like the the cover letter is there to show that you've done some research in the company. You know what the company is about. Like tailor your cover letter to that studio. Why? Why are you a good fit for the studio that you're looking at? Right? Instead of just it's it's so easy on the internet now to spam an application after twenty or thirty studios. Like the cover letter is there to show that you're putting some intent into the idea of working at this place, and and that's hugely important. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes someone can make is writing one cover letter and then just mass sending it out. If you don't tailor it to the studio you're applying to, someone's going to read the first two sentences, see that it's generic as hell, and just toss it out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to happen, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, the, the cover letter is super important. What about interview preparation? What, what, what tips do you have for someone who might be preparing for their first interview at a game studio? There's definitely some tips out there. I, I, I learned recently, actually, that there are people that, um, that I think you pay $1,000 to and they'll give you like a fake Amazon interview and a, and a whole bunch of engineers looking at joining Amazon are like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll pay $1,000 to do a fake Amazon interview so I can see what the Amazon interview process is like. Don't do that. You don't need to spend $1,000 doing that. Like that, that's, that, that. That's absolutely insane. Like good on you for having a thousand dollars to spend on that rubbish. Yeah. Um, but spend it somewhere maybe else. Maybe you don't need a job after all, but yeah, spend it somewhere else. Um, but definitely like if, if you're uncomfortable talking about yourself and talking to other people practice, right? Like have, have a friend do a, do a mock interview for you. Um, and, and just practice, right? Like practice talking about your work, talking about your process, and then have your friend give honest feedback and actually listen to it. The, the big thing for me was something that, like the, the interview process at Amazon was pretty interesting. Um, it was very situational based and it used this process called STAR, which was situation, action, and results. So you, you'd, you would ask a candidate like a question, it's like, hey, tell me about a time you disagreed with your boss, right? And or most of these questions are really, they're all around how, how you deal with other people and how you deal with incidents and everything else. Cause that's really at the crux of it. That's probably what you're going to be interviewed on. Because again, you've gone in the door because clearly you know your work. You, you, you might have a portfolio review. You might have a few questions about how you bake a normal map or something like that, but you're probably not. You're, you're going to get asked a bunch of questions that all pertain to how you deal with people or certain situations that come up. So really talking about it in this situational thing where it's like, yeah, I had this, one thing that happened. So this was the situation. Um, and then you talk about how you deal with it. And then you talk about the results. You build this little story around this, this one thing that happened, So people can really understand about how you work within a team, how you work with others and how you solve problems. Um, I, I think that's really key, but just, but just practice. Right. And, and, and be relaxed. Like don't, don't be as relaxed as dude that comes in and slouches in the chair with his hoodie up over his head um, but, but don't be up, uh, but don't be uptight and be nervous. Like I, I know it's no, it is nerve wracking doing an interview. Um, but you're really just talking, hopefully you're talking to a bunch of nice people about an industry that you just love. 
So let's say someone gets in, they get hired for their first job. In terms of sticking around the industry, beyond just doing your work at a really high level, what do you need to do to stick around at a studio? I know sometimes people bounce around from studio to studio. Sometimes things are out of their control. So that can't always happen, but just building up a good reputation in the industry, things like that. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's it's interesting, right? Like you mentioned that people bounce around from studio to studio. That that can be a negative. Like if you if you look at somebody's portfolio and they're like, oh, they spent six months here, they spent nine months there, they spent a year there. We're, we're like, okay, are we going to invest a bunch of time on this person only for them to bump onto another studio? So it's like I I, I get it, like you know, things, things happen, maybe you've got to move and maybe the studio closed and whatever. But if that is in your history, be prepared to answer questions about it, obviously. But like the space for just being a really good artist is pretty small. Um, and, I, and I say that where it's like, okay, say you're just a phenomenal prop artist and you, you just want to make props. So you come into a studio, you're making props, you're doing a bang up job. The problem is you're one person so much of that work that you're doing gets outsourced. It, it used to be that out, outsourcing was never quite at the same quality grade as the stuff that you do internally. And you, you'd use it for a bunch of filler stuff and everything else. And the internal artists would be the ones that would do the really, really high-end work. And, that, and that's definitely still the case. But the quality difference now between outsourced studios and internal studios is so close, right? So... You know, there's phenomenal artists at outsource studios that are doing really, really good work. So understand that in terms of your career, you might end up getting replaced by somebody on the other side of the world because they're doing work that's maybe not the same quality as you, but it's good enough quality for the game. And they're doing it at a third of the price. Right. So see, so you then have to say, unfortunately, where's my value? Right. Like, is my value in just creating these one art assets or can I have a bigger impact on this team? And that's where you should be looking to keep your career going. It's like, how can I have a big impact on this team? The biggest one is, it sounds cheesy, but being a team player and helping the whole team learn and get better. So if you're amazing at this one thing, don't keep that information to yourself. Don't be that person, share it with the team, help the team like foster this idea of learning and communication and sharing and everything else. Like I've, I've been on art teams where people close off and they've, they've developed this cool new technique and it's like, Hey, this is my thing to keep me at this studio. Like if anybody else learns this, then I'm not as, I'm not as needed at the studio. That's BS, right? The, the best thing you can do is to share your knowledge and encourage other people to share knowledge and, D develop that side of the studio and that is like absolutely absolutely crucial um you know I've, i think other questions that you should be asking is is what i'm doing the best thing for the game right let's say you're working on a game project it's like is me spending a week polishing this hubcap the best thing for this game probably not right so talk to your talk to your boss and, to, and talk to your lead or whoever and be like yo I think I'm working on the wrong thing here. Like, I think it would be better for you to put me on onto this. Like, what do you think about this? And being that proactive with your work, I think is super, super helpful. And just like, always look at not only how you can improve your work, but how you can be this force multiplier for other people, right? So it's like, I'm going to make all of this game better, not just by polishing up. Okay. I think that's super, super important. Um, 
I actually wanted to go back to something you said earlier about someone developing a pipeline or a technique or, or something helpful, but they feel like they have to keep it to themselves. Where do you think that mindset comes from? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that mindset comes from a couple of things. I think on the outset, um, artists are generally pretty insecure people about their work. And almost every artist I know thinks they're total crap, right? Like we, we all have imposter syndrome, um, especially the really good artists. They're like, oh, man, I'm crap. And it's like it's, it's so easy to think that these days where you can open up ArtStation and within five seconds, you're viewing work that is better than yours, right? And it's like, okay, it's really, in, it's really easy and I do it. Like I, I have major imposter syndrome. Um, you can look at somebody else's work and be like, I don't know how to do that. I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm rubbish, right? So, so then you develop this one thing where it's like, I did this one thing, it looks really good, Maybe I'm not as rubbish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this because this is making me feel good. It's making me feel better. And it's the one thing that I think is making me a better artist, right? So there's definitely that mentality on a personal level. But then you also have to look at the team and the studio as a whole and say, is this studio fostering this mentality, right? Like is the art team, is how this art team is led and is how the studio led as a whole, is that fostering this weird mentality where people are so nervous about their jobs, they're doing whatever they can to appear better than the person next to them and everything else. And you're like, I've worked in teams like that and it's not great. It's, it's not a comfortable feeling, right? And I think a, a lot of that mentality is leaving, leaving game studios now, um, which is really good, right? Like there's a lot more maturity in game studios and there's, there's just not room for that thinking anymore, right? Um, so I, I think it's I think it's twofold, and I would I would really hope that any any game studio that has a mentality like that will do a lot of work to get rid of it because it's hugely damaging. That's pretty much what I was thinking too, and it's kind of like, well, what if someone is in a bad place and they feel like I've got to hold on to this for me because there is no team first attitude here? Yeah, then like I, I would hope that that person has you know, a good enough support structure at work, whether whether it's their lead or if it's a pretty flat structure, maybe other artists can just stop and say, hey, how about we view this situation differently, right? Like, how, how about you see this as, like, you, you, th- you think this one thing is the, the main reason that you're being kept at the studio. If you shared that with a bunch of other people and you're making 10 artists better instead of just yourself better, do you think that is better for your career or do you think it's better just to hold on to this one thing? And hopefully they, hopefully they're going to say improve the 10 other people because that's the right answer. Right. 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 What about cross disciplinary communication? How much do you know about engineering and how does that help you in your day-to-day role? Like that is, that is huge. Um, Being, being able to work with other teams is probably the most important thing that you can do, right? Like I'm, I am not the best artist out there, but I pride myself in being able to work with just about anyone, even if they're a total jerk, especially like across a, a platform. I will work with engineers. I work with tech artists. I work with designers on stuff. And I, I don't need to understand the complexities of C++ code. That's their job, but I need to be able to communicate with them about what they're doing. I'll explain my art processes in 
a system in a way that they can understand coming from, you know, outside of the art processes. That'll explain some of the engineering problems with this in a way that I can understand and we'll kind of meet in the middle and go over it. So, you know, you, as especially as you move up in your career um, and, you know, you start having to, having to deal with larger projects, you're, you're going to have to deal with cross-discipline stuff and you're going to have to deal with people that think differently to you because they're engineers, not artists. Um, so, so definitely work on that, right? Like just the, the, and I think the big thing there is be nice, right? Like even if other people aren't being nice, be nice. And if somebody says something that you completely and utterly disagree with, think about why they said it because They've, they've said that because they think it's the best way of doing something or this is what they know. Don't, don't blast them for it. It's like they're, they're coming at this problem wanting to do the best. This is how they're, they're going to approach it. You're going to approach it differently. Try and understand where they're coming from and why they want to approach it in that way instead of just being like, oh, Mike's being a jerk because he thinks this, which is clearly wrong. It's like that's, that's not the right way to walk into one of these situations at all. Yeah, I think taking things personally at work is one of the worst things you can do, but it's also an extremely hard thing not to do because we put so much of ourselves into the work. But you're exactly right. I mean, you have to separate yourself from your work when you're talking to yeah. people and, and be able to take in their perspective and understand why they have that perspective. Or else you're just not going to have good communication and in turn, you're not going to have a good team. Exactly. Like that's, that's super important. And, and you grow a lot, right. And, and you understand the industry so much better when, when you do have these cross communicative talks with other people and having to deal, deal with larger systems, like dealing with the, you mentioned the wet system on, on Forza, right? Like this was a accumulation of um, me as an artist, a couple of um, tech artists and a couple of, graphics engineers um and then designers as well right like it's not it's it's never really just one person working on a big system anymore right so yeah like get, get into a room and you know s speak their language a little bit and, and educate them on some of your language and process as well yeah one of the things i really liked pre-covid was if i had a question for an engineer and i you know i worked in product management so actually how they did their work always went up over my head a little bit but i could always go over to the engineer and have them explain their work to me like I'm five so I can get their perspective about why things weren't working if they weren't working or talk about why a task is taking so long or, or whatever so that I could be a little more informed about the issue. And I found doing things like this is just so critical to have a functioning team. It, it really is. Um, and I think it's, it's critical for your understanding of the task, but I think it's also critical in like building that relationship with other people in your studio because it shows that you have interest in what that other person is doing. Right. Um, and that's, that's really, really important. And it's, it is definitely harder as we all are kind of still remote. Like I'm at band robot, we're a remote first studio. So we deal with everything remotely and, you know, we, we do a lot of work through Slack. Um, but if there's but if there's a complex thing that comes up, you can guarantee I'm I'm on a video call with somebody, um, and we're talking about it face to face, and they'll screen share, and you know it's it's kind of like I'm just looking over their shoulder at the office. I, um, and if you need to have a difficult conversation with somebody, never do it by text, right? Like that's that's the worst thing. Like I, angry emails or angry texts, don't don't do it. W walk over to that person's desk or have a video call with them and. 
and chat with them about it, but do yourself a solid and maybe take a few breaths before you do it and have a cup of tea and, you know, calm down a bit before you, before you have to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's also amazing how text can just be misinterpreted too. Exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the main reason to never do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I've plenty of those where it's like, is the person really pissed off or am I just interpreting it that way? Uh, never a good idea when you're trying to have a really important discussion and it's done over a message. Absolutely. Like, don't Slack message me, Zoom me, Slack yeah. call me, whatever. Yeah, I agree. Well, Matt, thanks so much for stopping by to talk with us. It was really cool to talk in depth about the interview process in particular. We usually say that, you know, just for the end, but it was fun to build a show around that. And hopefully it was really helpful to the audience. I can't imagine why it wouldn't be. Thanks again, man. This was, this was so much fun. Oh, you're welcome. I've had a blast. Um, thanks for having me on. All right, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. We want to thank Matt again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.